0: Welcome to PowerXL Podcasts. I'm Dr. Amy McKee, and I am delighted to be kicking off the second episode of PowerXL's podcast that explores the issues, trends, and innovations shaping the future of the life sciences industry. If you missed our first episode, be sure to give that a listen. It was an inspiring conversation with several women business leaders in honor of the recent International Women's Day. For this episode, we're coming to you from the 2019 World Orphan Drug Congress in Washington, D.C., where I am joined by two of my colleagues, Zizi Bebe and Mo Haideran. I joined Parexel earlier this year after serving as Deputy Director of the FDA's Oncology Center of Excellence. All in, I was at FDA for 11 years, and prior to that was at the National Cancer Institute and also spent time as a practicing physician. So it truly is an honor to be here with my new colleagues and spend some time talking about the current state of drug development for rare diseases and how we can engage rare disease patients to serve them better. We'll also talk later about a timely subject that Mo and I have some shared expertise on, the current transition in leadership of the FDA. Lastly, we'll all address some common misconceptions about working with the FDA and other global regulatory agencies in Paracel's first-ever Mythbusters segment. So with that, Mo and Zizi, thank you for joining me in this discussion.
1: Thank you for having us, Amy. Thank you very much, Amy.
0: Zizi, I understand that you specialize in clinical research in rare disease and have been with Paracel for about two years. What has been your career journey so far?
2: Well, Amy, I started off about 30 years ago, actually, as a research scientist um, doing research uh, in the CNS area, and I progressed from being a research scientist to working in various commercial, clinical operations, and strategy roles. Uh, in my 30 years, I've been very fortunate to work with rare disease diseases from a research point, and as well as working very closely with patient advocacy groups. So that's kind of spurred my interest and my passion um, in rare diseases. I work in ParExcel now as a senior director of, of solutions consulting and strategy development.
0: Thank you, Zizi, for sharing your journey to date. Mo, you recently joined parexcel from FDA, as I did. Can you tell us more about your background?
1: Sure. Um, Well, I want want to think that I have a very interesting background. Um, I started uh, and actually I stumbled in the field of regenerative medicine and regenerative space about 25 years ago when I started working at a small biotech company after working at NCI like you did uh, for about nine years as a senior staff fellow. In biotech industry, I've worked in the start startup environment, and then I went to a larger company, uh, Celgene. Uh, about 10 years ago, uh, I really re- realized that I need to beef up my regulatory experience. So I joined FDA. Initially, I worked in the Division of Manufacturing Quality, where I really received intensive tra- training in CGMPs, uh, facility inspection, etc. cetera. And I then I moved to the Office of uh, Tissue Advanced Therapy, OTAT, in Seber, where I uh, really worked toward learning uh, how to review different uh, submissions, uh, how to apply uh, existing regulatory to the, this new area of gene therapy, cell and gene therapy. And through it all, uh, really I've been able to uh, gain a significant amount of experience, not, on, on, not only in the review process, but also applying the existing regulation and making policies as we go forward. And now, um, at Paracel, I'm a vice president uh, of technical within our regulatory consulting, This means I regularly work with clients in the biopharmaceutical industry to help them navigate regulatory pathways, particularly in cell and gene therapy area.
0: Thank you both for sharing. Listening to your background, I'm wondering what drives your interest in rare diseases and improving the lives of patients living with these conditions? So for me personally, my ties with oncology, which has been the focus of my entire career, Today, nearly 13% or one of eight all cancer diagnoses in adults are considered rare. So the focus on rare disease has been encouraging for me to see from a patient care perspective. Zizi, how did you get into this area?
2: Yeah, I think for me to, like here was a personal thing, it's just working very closely with patients and patient advocacy groups. I mean, I know a mother who has four sons and all four of all four boys have Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And I know another mother who has two children and both of them have rare forms of cancer. Um, as you know, half of all the rare disease patients are children. So it's very heartbreaking uh, being a mother myself to see other parents that have to endure this. Rare disease is really a disease, it's a family illness. It's not just doesn't affect just one person, but when one person in the family has rare disease, the entire family has rare disease. So from a personal point standpoint, it is heartbreaking. I work closely with advocacy groups. I volunteer my time. It's, it's a course that I'm passionate about, and I'm fortunate that as a professional, I get the chance to work with various manufacturing uh, biopharmaceutical companies that are looking to bring Um, drugs into the market. So in my role at Parexcel, my role is really to help provide strategic guidance and counseling to companies as they look to get into the rare disease space. What are some of the strategic considerations they need to be thinking about? What are some of the logistical considerations? How do they incorporate patients better? And I think that because um, I work very closely with patients and patient groups and have a lot of connections, it really informs what I do in a very personal way.
0: It's really inspiring to hear both your personal and professional connection to this kind of research. Thank you. Mo, how about you?
1: Yeah, I definitely really got exposed to rare diseases from professional perspective. Um, as you know, approximately 80% of 7,000 known rare diseases are caused by a single gene defect. And these conditions are addressable by cell and gene a replacement, correction strategy by gene editing and other tools, which are a specific area of focus for me in the last uh, uh, sort of 20 years.
0: And I think we're seeing the impact of this in the industry with the significant increase in cell and gene therapies in development in the recent years. Mo, can you comment on that potential? Do you think that cell and gene therapy will live up to the expectations we keep hearing about?
1: Well, uh, we are beginning to see very promising results in cell and gene therapy approaches to treating rare diseases. FDHS approved uh, the first gene therapy product, uh, Luxterna, uh, that really addresses the gene mutation in RPE65, uh, which results in progressive blindness. These treatments are going to be transformative and potentially could address much more life-threatening conditions. Uh, FDA is seeing a, an explosion in new INDs, but I always recommend manufacturers to be measured and careful in their approaches to these therapies, as these therapies are very new.
0: Thank you, Mo. Now let's talk about the current landscape and outlook for treatment of patients suffering from rare diseases. From an FDA perspective, I've seen what the agency has been doing to drive innovation in the area. In this area. FDA has encouraged creative trial designs, and in particular for oncology, basket designs appear to have served an important role in rare disease subsets in oncology. With this approach, FDA has approved indications with as few as 18 patients in areas where the scientific knowledge and biology are well known. Zizi, you work frequently with patient advocacy groups and patients. How do you find the rare disease patient community to be different and similar to other patient groups you've worked with in the past?
2: Sure. Thank you for that, Amy. I think one of the um, challenges or the differences with the rare disease patient advocacy groups is a couple of reasons. One, it takes a very long time to diagnose the average rare disease. It's anywhere from about 5 to 15 years, on average about 8 years. And when you think about 30% of children that are diagnosed with rare diseases will not live until will not live up up until their fifth birthday, and it takes eight years to diagnose, that's quite significant. Um, So patients like this are often looking for um, someone that they can go to because they feel very isolated most of the time. So the first thing that they do is usually find out, is there a patient advocacy group for me that understands patients like myself? So that's one. There's a, a huge need, and there's a huge desire by the patients and their families To want to be um, a part of the patient advocacy group. Um, Secondly, patient advocacy groups in this area too are very open, you know, they are looking for collaborations because they know that um, their patients are looking for answers. Um, As you know, Amy, rare diseases are also very heterogeneous, so um, a rare disease might express differently you know, the same rare disease in, in, in different in different types of people. So that also is a driving force for them in, in doing that. Um, the rare diseases now probably about Maybe 40% of all drugs approved last year by the FDA were were rare diseases. And it's heartwarming to see pharmaceutical companies and sponsors wanting to be more involved in the rare disease space. So this is also driving the patient advocacy groups because they know they are getting more and more of a voice. There are more compounds that are coming up, uh, more drugs that are being brought into the market. Um, So they're becoming more and more powerful. Um, The FDA has a big push to make sure that the patient voice is heard in rare disease drug development. The patient advocacy groups are a good conduit to getting the patient voice, uh, especially in the early phases of developing the protocol and getting their insights on endpoints that need to be included, for example, in protocol designs.
0: That is a really important point to point out. I think it's so important to involve the patients, in particular, to know within diseases where we may not know that much about them what what the patients care about, what symptoms they care about, what outcomes they care about, what their families and caretakers can contribute to the drug development process. Mo and ZZ, we are now on the second day of the World Orphan Drug Congress. What are you hearing discussed at the show? Any common themes? I think for me, I've been
2: hearing a lot about diagnosis. People are realizing more and more, you know, that it's really unconscionable for diagnosis of rare diseases to be taking five to 15 years. So there's a big push now to make sure that we can provide more diagnostic tests and people can be tested early. The other thing that's coming up is just the cost of rare diseases. Um, There's a group here that focuses a lot on advocacy, but advocacy on a policy side, on a government side. So it's it's really going to take all three of those, the government regulations, the government agencies, the regulatory, as well as the patients. And what they are saying is that the cost of rare diseases is about $1 trillion. That's significant. So they are trying to increase the voice and the noise of rare diseases in Washington DC, which is where we happen to be in. So that's very interesting um, to hear that.
0: Mo, what's the buzz from your end? Well, um, I think
1: uh, for me is patient centricity is very important. And I hear a lot about that uh, in this, um, in this uh, conference. Um, and people, uh, CEOs of many companies, talk about how to involve uh, patient advocacy in the uh, design of trial, in execution of trial, and to, to, for them to have more input into the process. And, of course, FDA is also uh, really conscious of that, the, the patient-centricity. And this is very important for them as well. So uh, the key word for me is uh, patient focus uh, type of c- clinical trial as we go forward in this space, which is going to be desperately needed.
0: In our next segment, Mo and I will discuss a subject that is near and dear to our hearts, the FDA. In recent years, the agency's impact not just on the domestic biopharmaceutical industry, but on the regulation of drugs globally has grown. The agency has taken on initiatives to promote patient-centric trial design and engage with patient advocacy groups as well as apply flexible regulatory decision-making for areas where there is unmet medical need. Mo, you and I both joined Paracel's regulatory consulting team recently from the FDA. With the resignation of Scott Gottlieb as FDA commissioner and the current transition to Commissioner Norman Sharpless in progress, it made me think about past transitions at the FDA and what the industry might expect during this time. Were you involved in any transition during your time at the FDA, and what was your experience?
1: Yeah, uh... Well, I wasn't there for Scott Gottlieb's uh, recent transition because I joined a four months ago, so I missed that one. But uh, I've been involved in two additional transitions while I was at FDA the last uh, nine years or so. Um, In my opinion, commissioners come and go, and they definitely play a very crucial role at FDA, uh, very critical role. But uh, the sustainability of FDA is really dependent on four, dif- four different pillars, in my opinion. The dedicated, knowledgeable review staffs that are really um, um, working hard uh, to, uh, to sustain and maintain institutional knowledge uh, as they perform their review uh, duties. Uh, the second one is the are the policy makers, which are well informed, and they really uh, look at uh, different perspectives. They look at the science behind policies. They look at regulatory consideration. They look at uh, the desire of the patient advocacy group and the public uh, knowledge, etc., in order to develop policies. The third uh, pillar is that I consider very important that is involved in sustainability of FDAs are the inspectors that really maintain uh, quality of the products that are sold in the market. And the final one is the functional managers that that, uh, really run the offices and they make decisions like you. And those functional managers are essentially operate in sort of independent from the commissioner's office. So that independence really is a crucial part of the sustainability of FDA.
0: I agree. In my last role at FDA, I worked on creating the Oncology Center of Excellence, which is a cross-center collaboration, the purpose of which was to ensure consistency in regulatory decision-making and policy across the entire agency. And while the uncertainties of creating a new entity within the federal government makes it challenging, I think everyone within the FDA understood the need for this center. Also, I worked with Norm Sharpless when he became the NCI director. I think we can expect to see from him a measured, science-based approach to tackling the challenges of development in healthcare. While he was at the NCI, he managed to negotiate an even larger budget for basic research, and that really is the building block for the future therapies that we will all be trying to develop for the patients. I think we'll be watching closely to see what he does, and we hope for, for new things to come from the FDA in his first few months of his tenure. While we're on the topic of FDA, we thought it might be interesting to our listeners if we shared some of our personal experience and perhaps did a little Mythbuster section regarding working with FDA. Mo and Zizi, are you ready? Yes. yes. Okay. Myth number one, the FDA requires randomized clinical trials for all new drug applications. Mo, what was your experience here?
1: Well, I don't have to tell you that this is a myth. Uh, at least in oncology space and many other rare diseases. fda has published several guidance documents that explain this. For example, in guidance published in 2008 on gene therapy and recent guidances on rare diseases, uh, it explains uh, when it is justifiable that you can perform single-arm studies uh, and randomization is not required. Uh, We know, in in some cases, uh, it is justifiable to conduct trials that are not randomized. And this is because of many factors, like a small patient population, ethical issues, and other factors that have to be considered, which are considered by FDA case by case.
0: Yes, FDA tries to be very flexible when it comes to unmet medical need, and, and in particular in oncology, because of the nature of the disease. Accelerated approval and innovative regulatory review were key words in my time there. I think we will likely only see this continue into other disease areas as well. Okay, next up, myth number two. The FDA has an impact on drug pricing. Thoughts? Uh,
1: Well, I think uh, FDA has very indirect impact on drug pricing. But control of pricing, however, is not part of the agency's mission and officially this has been articulated many times. Uh, However, uh, this impact of pricing comes from how competition is encouraged in this space by encouraging manufacturers to develop products that are generic or biosimilar and accelerating that process uh, uh, by encouraging those manufacturers to engage in that. However, at the end, this is not necessarily proven to be a solution in this case. Uh, as a former uh, Commissioner Gottlieb has uh, indicated, he tried very hard to encourage uh, generation and manufacturing of Uh, new generics, and buy similar products. But uh, control of pricing is very complex and requires additional consideration. And of course, uh, this was one of uh, Dr. Gottlieb's mandate and goal. And I hope uh, this uh, will be delivered in future um, by future commissioners at FDA.
2: Yes, I have to agree as well that the FDA has an indirect role in pricing. Um, That's because in in many cases, um, when sponsors, for example, are, are looking to bring a drug into the market, ideally they want to bring a drug that has the right patient endpoints that are meaningful for the endpoints, but also that are clinically significant. But in the real commercial world that we live in, they also have to... Have endpoints that the payers will pay for. So it's that balance, you know, how do you straddle the fence between those three? And the FDA also has kind of like a say-so on, okay, these are the endpoints we think you should be looking at.
0: Okay, and our last and final myth of today, and this is a good one, pharma companies don't need to meet with the FDA until they're ready to conduct clinical trials. This is definitely a myth. Pharma companies should meet with the FDA early in development to ensure the establishment of the most patient relevant endpoints. CBER even has a pre-pre-IND meeting to engage with companies very early in the development process.
2: Yes, I agree. Um, I agree that pharma companies do need to meet with the FDA even before. I mean, I'm here at the World of Ann Congress and I was just talking to a company that's doing preclinical work. And one of the advice and the guidance that I was giving him, even though he's in preclinical work, was to start looking at Meeting with the IND, with the FDA and doing the pre IND meeting so that he makes sure that he's getting the right guidance that he needs. So you can't meet with the FDA too regularly. I think another myth, Amy, is people are generally just scared of the FDA. They just think, oh, the FDA, you know, they're going to say no to everything. But, um, I'm finding that the FDA is more flexible, more willing to work with manufacturers, more willing to work with patients, are more engaging. Um, they have created all these, f- wonderful expedited pathways to get, um, you know, drugs to the market really quickly. So they're your friends. They want to see you succeed. They want to bring products, um, life-saving products into the market, especially when there is an
1: unmet need. Uh, Zizi, I agree with you. The folks at FDA are very friendly, (laughs) uh, like me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, early early engagement is the key thing, yeah, because uh, if you – do not go through early engagement with FDA. The manufacturers and sponsors are really bound to make mistakes. And uh, early engagement allows them to uh, learn from the mistakes of others because FDA will have feedback uh, for them and gives them direction on how to avoid pitfalls going forward. So that early engagement is not only f- good for the manufacturer, but also is good for the reviewing staff to get the exposure to the technology and be ready to handle those technologies as they go forward. So I highly encourage early engagements with friendly staff from FDA.
2: Absolutely.
0: (laughs) I think at the end of the day, we can all agree that the agency is more willing to work with the companies earlier in drug development process, and there's a benefit both for the industry and ultimately for the patients. Thank you both so much, Mo and Zizi. This has been a great conversation, and I'm looking forward to what the rest of the Congress holds. For our listeners, tune into the next episode when we'll be discussing how we can work together to make patient-centricity more than an industry buzzword. In the meantime, you can find our podcasts on Paraxel.com and subscribe on Google Play, iTunes, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Amy.